Oh God, let this let this be our prayer. When we lose our way, grant us faith that we might stand in grace and safe. Holy Father, in the midst of our brokenness, hear our prayer through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I hold here in my hands <clears throat> a page from Newsweek magazine just three weeks ago. This is the My Turn column that they run every week. Somebody else steps forward to share a testimony. And I want to read a testimony to you. Just the first story of this testimony written by Holly Hubbard Preston. She writes from St. Helena, California. Listen to this. It started out as a typical sandbox fight between four-year-olds. Two preschool girls battling over a red plastic sand strainer. Suddenly... One of the little girls gave up. With her hands clenched at her side, she began to bawl. Her pint-sized opponent looked up at me, a lunchtime volunteer mom, for help. All this over a sand toy, her eyes seemed to say. What's really bothering you, I asked, putting an arm around the sobbing bundle before me. I want my daddy. I want to go to his house now. I want my mommy to come. She said, tears and words pouring out in equal measure. I started to feel my own throat ache. I clutched her closer as I debated whether to let her see my own tears. Sarah, not her real name, is struggling to come to terms with her parents' failing marriage. The fact that her dad recently moved out would be foreboding to any child, four or forty. I should know, nearly three years ago, my father moved out of our family home. Now my parents are divorced after 35 years of marriage. Their split was not a total surprise. They had been growing apart for years. Still, I had always held out hope, childish as it might have been, that somehow mom and dad would find a way back to one another. The fact that they never will has been a hard reality to swallow, even as a seasoned, married, 34-year-old. They say misery loves company. That somehow human suffering is tempered when you know you're not alone. Well, if that's the case, then, ladies and gentlemen, there are a whole lot of us when, with more than a small amount of comfort with a company that is so large. You think about it. There is hardly a family you know that today is not suffering from some sort of family pain or familial dysfunction. I mean, you know, it, it just makes you want to get back to the good old days. Back to those good old days when, when divorce and broken homes and runaway kids and two-timing dads were a rarity. Back to those good old days when marriages were happy and children were obedient and homes were models. In preparing for this, uh, this uh, series... 
this summer. I thought to myself, you know what? That's what we need to do. We need, we need to go back to those good old days and get a model or two, maybe three or four families from back in the beginning. The kind of families that we could hold up in front of our suffering hearts and say, oh, hallelujah. That's how you do it. That's how you find security. There, look at the way they live. That's how human, human happiness comes into a human family. And so I set out. Back in August, I put my white pad down and I began to make a list of every single family that could serve as that kind of model for you and me. We only need three or four. Now, I want you to discover what I discovered in utter astonishment. And so I'm not going to read my little white pad to you. Instead, let's do this. Let's take a quiz. Let's call this the first families quiz. Let's go to every family we know by name in the book of Genesis. Let's do that, okay? I mean, some families, we don't have any names. So we won't go to those families. But God obviously wanted to remember some of these families. And so even if we know only the name of the husband, as long as the wife is mentioned, we got Noah and we got Mrs. Noah, just his wife. We're not going to go to Enoch because we don't know his wife's name. And there are all kinds of genealogies. We'll leave those out. But the families we know by name. Let's check them out. Let's take a quiz. Since this is the kind of the wrap up to the Olympic system uh, celebration, I thought, well, maybe what we ought to do is rate the families gold, silver and bronze. Problem with that rating is it's too tight. And so this is what are we? This isn't too early in a semester to give a quiz since we're in an academic setting. Let's let's rate these families a ideal model C average F failure. No in between. Don't you give me a B. Don't you give me a D. Only A, C, and F. Let's take the quiz again. Let's put it up on the screen and go through the families. What would be the first family? Come on. What's the first family? Oh, my Adam and Eve. Let's put Adam and Eve up. Shall we give them an A? Shall we give them a C? Shall we give them an F? I tell you what, Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, before the fall, we have nothing. We assume they're wildly in love, but we have nothing until the fall. And it is at the moment of the fall that the famous name the blame game sets in. I mean, in, instantly. Uh, why are you doing this, Adam? Well, the woman you gave me made me do it. Why are you doing this, Eve? Well, the snake you made made me do it. You know what, folks? Hey, these are our parents, Adam and Eve. I want to be really gracious to them. I want to, I want to give them an A. Everything within me wants to give them an A. Not a dysfunctional family, a happy family. And then I'm thinking about the kids. Hey, by the way, you and I, we, 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 have, we have no way, no way of knowing what it was like to come out of that perfect garden. We are told, get this, we are told that when Adam came to the very first leaf that fell, we make music about the autumn leaves. Oh, this is wonderful. We write love songs about it. When Adam comes to that first fallen leaf, we are told those huge shoulders began to heave and sob as he wept over death he had not seen. What do you think it's like as mama and papa say, hey, where, where, where are the boys, honey? Where, where, where did they go? It's so quiet around here. And they walk out into that green carpeted valley and they find the bludgeon form of the younger and the older has run away forever from home. Uh, I want to give that family, I want to give them an A. But I, I have a feeling they're going to get a C. Let's give them a C. That's an average grade. You want to put the boys up there, Cain and Abel? 
What are you going to give Cain and Abel as a grade? I'm telling you, we are talking major dysfunction here. Sibling rivalry, intense jealousy. There's not a parent here, I suppose, that has come home to find one of the children murdered by another sibling. F. F for Cain and Abel. Let's put the other. These are the pre-flood families. Now, there are a whole lot of them. We don't know them all by name. We know a lot of the husbands. But look, you got Enoch. Oh, I'd love to give Enoch an A. Come on, let's give him an A. We don't know. We have no idea what happened in that family. We do know that the seventh in the line from Cain is Lamech. And Lamech is the first polygamist. Two wives. I say give him an F. That is a big mistake. He started it. Ladies and gentlemen, let's take the next family you know by name. What's the next family? Come on, flood. What's the next family? Noah and Mrs. Noah. Let's put them up on the quiz. Let's take a quiz for Noah and Mrs. Noah. What are we going to give them? Hallelujah to God in the ark. They saved their boys and the boys' wives. Now, after the flood is over, of course, Papa gets a little drunk. And he's lying in the tent, stark naked, in the buff. And one of his boys walks into that tent, sees Dad spread eagle naked, and starts laughing. And say, hey, he goes out to his brother and says, you're not going to believe what, how Dad looks so stupid like this. Something's going wrong in this home. There is no respect for Papa. There is major dysfunction. Give him a C. Be gracious. Let's give the family a C. Give him a C. What's the next family that comes along by name where we know husband and wife? Hey, she was beautiful. Barren, but beautiful. Abraham and Sarah. He's such a placator. I mean, I'm telling you, every time she gets it, well, you know, maybe that's what kept them together. I don't know. You got Abraham and Sarah. And, you know, I, I say, oh, man, I, I want to give these guys an A. But then I realize the, the incredible dysfunction they set up within their relationship. And let's put the next one up with, with Abraham and Hagar. So let's give C to Abraham and, and Sarah. But look at this. He says, listen, we're, we're, we're not making it here. And the wife's idea, why don't you father a child through my servant? So he marries again. This is major. We, we now have two wives competing for the husband's attention. I'm telling you, fellas, never marry two wives. Never. This is, this is why. You have two wives now competing for the husband's attention. There is rivalry. And it's terrible. It is a mess. Give them an F. Abraham and Hagar, it is an F. Let's put the two boys up there. Next. Who are the two sons? Ishmael and Isaac. What you have done, oh my, one dysfunction oftentimes leads to another. And so now you've created, you've created inter-sibling rivalry. Step-brothers. And one day, Sarah, you remember, catches Ishmael taunting at Isaac. She says, that's it. It's out of here. You send that woman and a boy out. Put an F for Isaac and Ishmael. Well, hallelujah. There comes it. What's the next family? Isaac and Rebecca. Ah, isn't this wonderful? It's a beautiful love story that gets those two started. Something is wrong in the family, though. I, I, we have a feeling we know what it is because the parents start playing favorites. I see a few parents these days that do it. You know, Papa goes for the oldest and, and Mama goes for the second. Or, you know, Mom and Dad, that is a major, major mistake. Because you create alignment. You create a whole dysfunctional system of relationships or lack thereof within the marriage and within the kids. Isaac and Rebecca, let's not fail them. They did okay. Let's give them a C. Give them an average grade. Give them a C. What about the boys, the brothers, Jacob and Esau? Uh, jealous from the very beginning. He's, he swindles. He deceives his older brother, Jacob does. And then has to end up, because of this massive deception, having to run away from home. F for Jacob and Esau. 
Well, Jacob runs away. He meets a man who said, you work for me, you get my girl. But he got the wrong girl. I mean, what a letdown, huh? Jacob and Leah. Hey, what is that? Is that a wonderful relationship? Well, you're stuck. You can't back out. So he keeps her. And they have children. And when she quits having children, she brings her servant girl in. So Jacob now marries Leah plus the servant girl. But Jacob says, oh, Laban, I want Rachel. Now, there is a genuine love story. The Hebrew is clear. It is a passionate love. Jacob gets Rachel. Let's put Rachel up there as well. But it's just as bad because Rachel can't have kids. And so she brings her servant girl. Jacob now has four wives. Count them four. That is always bad news. What do you want me to say? It's good news. I want to be gracious. Let's be gracious. Jacob and Leah will give them an average. Jacob and Rachel, okay, we give them an average score. Now, the boys are born. Five, four wives, one father. She got 12 sons. Joseph and his brothers. How did it go with these sweet boys? Karen and I and Chrissy just last night were reading Carlisle Behane's wonderful book on the life of Joseph. God sent a man. And we were reading it for worship last night. And, oh, man, poor Joseph. He may have brought a little bit on himself. Because Papa is drawn to his deceased wife's oldest child, Joseph. And so there's this with Jacob and Joseph. Big mistake, Papa. Please, big mistake. You can't play favorites without paying the cost. I tell you what, it is massive mess. Failure. F. Give him an F. Joseph and his brothers. What's that leave? Oh, Judah. Joseph leaves home, and so that leaves older brother Judah. Judah's boy is married to a girl named Tamar. The boy dies. Judah's, Judah does not provide another husband. Tamar becomes a prostitute. The father c- commits incestual, incestual relationships with Tamar because he wouldn't fulfill his paternal obligation. You have a huge mess. I'm trying to find the right word, but there's nothing better than mess. F. Thank you. One more that we know of by name in the book, and that is Joseph and Asenath. She's the daughter of Potiphar's high priest. There is not a word said about their marriage, so we're going to give them an A. We'll give them an A. Somebody's got to get an A in this quiz. They got the A. Although I must tell you, whenever you take two religions and try to blend them in one marriage, there is heartache. We don't know. The scriptures are silent. Ladies and gentlemen, I sit down this summer. I say, well, we're going to have a wonderful family life series. Let me get the model family so that when we get together. Thank you, Jesus, for that beautiful example. There is not one. I could find not one model family in the book of Genesis. In fact, you want to see that? Let's do what do we call this? The first families quiz. Let's add one more first family. One more. Let's add the family that our incarnate God chose to become his home away from home. Let's put Mary, Joseph, Jesus and the step siblings up. And will you please rank that family for me? A, C or F? 
I know that with Jesus and his mother, that's an A. I know that Jesus with his stepfather, that's an A. But I want to tell you, the gospel record clearly infers an home environment for Jesus with his step-siblings because scholars believe Joseph had been married before. The wife dies. He marries young Mary. He brings along children from the previous marriage. Scholars believe the gospels infer a home environment of rival competitive animosity with the stepbrothers and stepsisters. I'm not going to tell you what grade to give our Lord. But I'm just telling you, it wasn't a bed of roses either. There you have them, ladies and gentlemen. There they are. All the first families of the Bible, including the family God chose for his very own. He picked it out and said, I'd like to have that one right there. And now one of them emerges as a shining ideal for human happiness and security within the family. Turns out the good old times aren't so good, are they? Wow. All of these families, bless their souls, plagued with the Achilles heel of the average home. They are vulnerable. They are weak at the heart of their most sacred and covenanted relationships. Vulnerable underbellies at the place of relationship. And all of them, all of them hit, hit hard. The covenant keepers became the covenant breakers from the very beginning. I know what you're saying. You say, ah, come on, Dwight. What? There are no divorces here. And of course, you're absolutely right. I mean, who needs a divorce when you can keep adding wives? No big deal. Abraham, think with me, Abraham essentially divorced Hagar. Jacob would have divorced Leah for Rachel if he could have. David, and that wasn't even in our story, David left his first wife, Michael, for Abigail and later took Michael back, breaking up her second marriage. Solomon, not to be outdone, tore a page out of his father's playbook, game book, and had a, married a whole harem full of pagan wives. Or as the little boy said, he had 900 porcupines. Those are concubines. Very prickly. You say, what's the point, Dwight? Come on, what is the point? Hey, you surely get the point by now. Our present day dysfunctions in our marriages and in our families have placed us in the company of some of the greatest and sorriest families in sacred history. They, they fumble and they fail. They marry, they mess up, and they remarry. The very marriage line that God himself chooses to come into. Read Matthew chapter 1, Jesus' genealogy sometime. There are four women listed by name. One of them is Tamar, who played the prostitute. Another is Ruth, the Moabitess. Another is Rahab, a real-life prostitute. And the other is Bathsheba, the adulteress. Four of them, all there for God to say, I am coming into the midst of your family life, just as it is. Wow. Misery loves company. Well, if that's the case, then we have a whole History full of company that we share today. By the way, don't miss this. This is a blessed word of grace to you and me. Because some of God's closest friends in the history of the human race are a part of that quiz we just took. The Bible calls Abraham a friend of God. Apparently, God is big on being friends with broken homes and broken hearts. Hey. And by the way, there's a second word of grace. And that second word of grace this morning is this. Listen carefully. It shall not 
always be. It will not be unto the end. I want to share with you, in our wrap-up here, the breathtaking prediction made by a single prophecy that we will not live with this brokenness unto the very end. You've got to read this for yourself. Open your Bible, please, to our preaching portion this morning. The very last page of the Old Testament. Check this one out, will you? Wow. The very last page. The very last line of the Old Testament. Find Matthew, the book right before it. That's Malachi. Take a look at this. Malachi chapter 4. The last two lines. Verse 5 and verse 6. Take a look at this. I'm in the New Revised Standard Version here. God is speaking, lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents so that I will not come and strike the land with a curse. Now, you need to know that long after Malachi wrote these words, the Jews, many Jews actually got to think, hey, we're going to have the physical return of Elijah one day. In fact, 400 years later. A delegation of priests comes to that camel-haired, bushy-bearded, thundering voice in the wilderness. They come to John the Baptist and they say, Hey, you, are you Elijah? And John shoots back, Nope. I am a voice crying in the wilderness who comes to you with the spirit and power of Elijah. It is clear right here that Elijah is a code word for a fiery spirit of revival that will sweep over the community of faith just before the Messiah comes back. Hallelujah. Folks, this is incredible. What you and I are reading here. Can you believe it? Well, let's read it one more time here. Verse 5. Lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents so that I will not come and strike the land with a curse. Here is a promise from God that by the day of the Lord, by the way, read end of time, by the end of time, God is going to take broken lives, broken homes and marriages. And he says, I will heal you before the end. He said, look, I'm going to take the parents. I'm going to turn the parents to the children. I'm going to turn the children to the parents. By the way, by extension, I'm going to take the husbands and turn them back to the wives. I will take the wives and turn them back to the husbands. I am going to heal you before I return. I'm telling you what, folks, just mark it down in your book. This is a phenomenal promise and prediction. I'm going to do it. In the same issue of Newsweek, three weeks, three weeks ago, there was a book review of Judith Wallerstein's newest book. Put it up on the screen so you can see the title there. The Unexpected Legacy of Divorce, a 25-year landmark study. Who is this Judith Wallerstein? She's a psychologist. Dr. Wallerstein, back 30 years ago, took a little over 100 kids from the San Francisco Bay Area. She said, I want to check these kids. They, they're, they're, they came from divorced homes. She said, I want to find out what is the effect of divorce on children. She came out back in 1989, her bestseller, Second Chances, Men, Women, and Children, A Decade After Divorce. Now, she says, I want to go back to these same kids. I want to find out how the children are doing 25 years plus later. She goes back, and hence we get this book. Now, let me read a, uh, a few of her words in this book. 
And by the way, for the 20 year follow up, Wallenstein also interviewed a group of 44 children from intact families. They didn't go through divorce. They went to the same school. So see, I want to get a little comparison here. By comparing the life experiences of the two groups, the study concludes that parental divorce has a profound and lasting impact on the emotional lives of children, which is felt most acutely in their own adult relationships. The children of divorce experience lives fraught with pitfalls, ranging from crippling fears of loss and disaster to greater use of drugs and alcohol during youth. They also had fewer marriages. Fewer children, more divorces than the children from intact families, the study showed. While most children of divorce do eventually conquer their difficulties and lead normal lives, hallelujah, they make more mistakes along the way, Wallerstein said. This is very important, quoting her now, because it's about one quarter of the population. One quarter of adults today come from divorced homes. Their parents divorced. One quarter in America. And it's important, she goes on, to note that these divorces have a very specific impact. It doesn't affect their life work. It doesn't affect their academic achievement, speaking of the kids. But it does affect their relationships as man and woman. She goes on. It is clear from my study that the younger the children are when a divorce occurs, the more harm they experience. <laughs> wow. And we just read a line here. Verse 6, Malachi 4, he will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents. Healing even for the children of divorce. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. How many kids are here? Don't raise your hand. How many kids here are from divorced homes? We now know that the statistics are identical inside as well as outside these walls. What the presidential pollsters are saying, a dead heat. Identical. But what God promises to do in this last word of the Old Testament is just, isn't this something? He promises to take those fractured statistics and heal the broken hearts of those shattered homes and marriages. Now, I've got to say to you, kids, you from divorced homes, God is not saying, I'm going to make your parents go back and be married. I mean, the fact is, it, it just may be too far now. You can't hold out that hope any longer. But what God is saying is, I'm going to step into the middle of your own brokenness and I am going to heal you. I'm going to take care of you, baby. I will never leave you or forsake you. You can count on me. That's what he's saying. Some things just can't get put back together again. Not Humpty Dumpty and not some marriages. You say, look at Dwight, are you sure this is about marriages? Yes, I am very sure. And this comes as a surprise to people, but God has already been talking about marriage and divorce in this little book, this little minor prophet. Take a look at this. Now, look, before you read this, before you put the words up on the screen, I need to put a pastoral disclaimer here because I know how some of you are going to feel. Some of you are going to, you're going to squirm. You're going to say, oh, you're going to say, ouch. You're going to it's, it's going to bring back memories. And I, and I want to make this pastoral disclaimer. Listen to me very carefully, please. Some of you are in deep pain right now over divorce. And I need you to know that what you are about to read is not condemning your pain or even addressing that issue. What you are about to read is for those who are not in deep pain over the divorce they're pursuing. 
That's a critical dis- distinction. Because some here are contemplating divorce right now. I know as pastor of this parish, I want you in particular to read what we're about to read. Malachi chapter two, it begins in verse 13. God is very blunt. I can't apologize on his behalf, but in a moment, I want to show you how utterly logical it is for God to speak this way. Verse 13, and this you do as well, God speaking. You cover the Lord's altars with tears. You're up here weeping, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts with favor what what is coming from your hands. Verse 14, you ask, why isn't he doing this? Why does God not get excited about what I'm bringing? Because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth. God's talking. He's getting in the face of husbands right now. God says, I saw that. I heard it. I heard you say before the witnesses of heaven and earth, I will stay with this woman as long as I live. I heard you say it. See, the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. You covenant, you promised. Oh, God. Verse 15. Did not one God make her? Both flesh and spirit are his. And what does the one God desire? Godly offspring. Papa, think about your children. So look to yourselves and do not let anyone be faithless to the wife of his youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And covering one's garment with violence, says the God of Lord of hosts. So take heed to yourselves and do not be faithless. I told you, that's very blunt. I mean, that's about as blunt as God ever gets. In the midst of human pain, why does he have the gall to walk into our worship service and say, by the way, I hate divorce. I'll tell you why. Think with me for a moment. God is the most relational being in the universe, isn't he? God loves relationships more than anything else. There is nothing. Ladies and gentlemen, N-O-T-H-I-N-G. There is nothing that God values more than relationships. He's just big on it. In fact, you think about this. Every covenant in Scripture is a a promise to protect relationships. Marriage covenant, I want to protect husband and wife. Family covenant, I want to protect parents and children. Creation covenant, I want to protect this earth. Spiritual covenant, I want to protect your relationship with me. Covenants are for protecting relationships so that anything. Now, here's is anything that threatens to destroy a covenant is really destroying a relationship. And God says, I hate that. Now, I have to put in another pastoral insertion right here. I'm not seeking to create some sort of guilt trip upon divorced Christians. God knows you have already suffered enough. Innocent or guilty, it doesn't matter. You've already suffered enough. But what God is promising to do is to heal you. But if he can, before the covenant is broken, stop the disillusion of the covenant, he's stepping in to say, please, if you still have it in your hands to make the decision, hold it just a minute. Speaking to an audience of students, young adults who one day themselves will 
make the covenant before heaven and earth. God is saying, hold it, hold it, hold it. How can you, with cavalier disdain and callous disregard, simply walk away from that covenant and say, it just doesn't feel good anymore. I quit. You can't. This isn't like buying a car, folks. This isn't 60 months and you can sign the contract and then it's over. This marriage is a lifelong commitment. God isn't railing on those who have already been through the brokenness. And in fact, he says, for your brokenness, I promise to heal you. But if you're on the verge, if you're ten steps back and you're contemplating the disillusion of the covenant, say, oh, please, please, please. There has to be another way. That's why there are ten commandments. And all ten chiseled in stone. So that God can protect every relationship that matters most to you and me and him. God is just big on relationships and he will do everything he can to save a covenant before it's forever broken. Now, I realize. I realize that for some of you. Who had to walk into a divorce court. And finally say, enough is enough. And the greatest family, most well-known family counselor in the United States today, Dr. James Dobson, has written that book of his, Love Must Be Tough. And he said, there are times when you're going to have to walk into that courtroom and you are going to have to, for the sake of your survival, make that decree. I realize for you who had to already walk into a courtroom, the covenant was broken before you ever got to court. God honors that sense of brokenness. And God himself made the provision for divorce in the first five books of the Bible. He's just saying for those who are still hanging in there, please don't, if you can at all, avoid it. Don't break the covenant. Because God knows that the sinister serpent of Genesis 3 is coiled all the way through the book of Genesis and is in fact the one that is seeking to destroy every covenant relationship he can get his diabolical hands on. I'm telling you what, folks, I'm going to be just really candid with you here. This is very, very difficult. There is a there is an extremely fine line here. And because there are some today who are wondering, shall we not pursue the divorce? I'm making. Perhaps violating this fine line a tad to make the appeal, please, please, please give it one more chance. We got a campus full of competent family therapists. We got them in the community. If there could be just one more chance, please don't tear the paper up yet. Well,
I want to read one last time in your hearing this phenomenal promise. I put that insertion in there, and so I'm, I'm, I just want to go back. I want to go back. This will get us back to the conclusion. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Lo, God says, I promise you, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents so that I will not come and strike the land with a curse. And I want to tell you something. If I were the one writing the Old Testament, I would never have ended. I would never have ended the Old Testament with such a doom and gloom expression. I mean, come on, God, your last words. I'm going to strike the land with a curse. What kind of unhappy ending? Don't we have enough unhappy endings in our lives as it is? Do you have to end the Old Testament the same way? I would have said that until I, I, I discovered this last week. That the last four words, get this, the last four words in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, tell the story of the first four books of the New Testament. The last four words, strike the land with a curse, describe the first four books of the New Testament. God coming to earth to bear the curse that was only Rightfully ours. Isaiah, take a look at this. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 and 6. For he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. One more text. Galatians 3.13. He really did become the curse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. Ladies and gentlemen, mark it well. The last four words introduce the first four books of the New Testament. So that when the Son of God stretches out his arms on that cross and expires as the God forsaken God, there is the assurance no failed marriage, no broken home is not now atoned for. No moral fall. No shattered life is not now pardoned. He took the curse so that we might receive His grace. All this week I've been memorizing an old hymn. It's attributed to Bernard of Clairvaux who lived back in, what, 1091 to 1153. It's a beautiful, beautiful hymn. And so I've been working on memorizing uh, these three stanzas. The second stanza describes the moment when Christ took the curse. I'm going to put the words up there. Look at this incredible prayer. O sacred head now wounded. You remember the hymn. This is stanza two. What thou, my Lord, hast suffered was all for sinners gain. Mine, mine was the transgression and thine the deadly pain. Lo, here I fall, my Savior. Tis I deserve thy place. Look on me with thy favor. Vouchsafe, that's old English, please be pleased to grant to me, vouchsafe to me thy grace. Does it really work? The curse being born for us. I want to end with a story. The story happened this summer. 
I met a couple this summer whose tears tell me that, in fact, it really does. Calvary's grace really does work. I was preaching in a camp meeting far away from here. And at the end of the Sabbath morning sermon, I gave an altar call to those who wish to come to this Jesus who is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Two ministers came forward in that call, two pastors who had left the ministry. One of them came up to me with his wife after the service and with halting lips and a quiver in his voice told me of an infidelity he had fallen into several months earlier. It had been a terrible mistake and he had repented to his wife who is standing right beside him as he's describing what has happened in his life. The conference withdrew his ministerial credentials. He has no pastorate now. And so he, 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 he's kind of tumbling through this. Is there any way without a pastorate I can somehow minister again to the pastors of this land? Can I go to pastors? Can it be arranged for me to go and share the heartache of what I have done? Can I somehow dissuade any others from pursuing so fatal and foolish a path? And I, learned, I just listened to this man as he talked. He just unburdened his heart. When he, was, when he was through, I, I spoke a few words of, of solidarity. I hope a few words of comfort. And then we had a prayer together. But I'm telling you what, what remains with me to this day is the tear-brimmed bravery of that young wife who stood beside this man clinging to his arm the entire time. When I opened my eyes from the prayer that I prayed for them, I looked into her tears and I realized, without a word, the costly price of this woman's grace and forgiveness. I'm telling you what, her trembling lip spoke volumes to my own heart of the redeeming, restoring power of the lover who bears the curse of the fallen one. And I saw for a fleeting moment in those brimming eyes of hers the love of God that is the salvation of every broken home and dysfunctional family. If this woman can go on with love for her man, then surely there is no marriage, there is no home, there is no life that the love of God cannot save.